Next topic, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 through verse 16. Um, we're calling it hair and head coverings. Understanding God's design of roles in, in worship. All right? Now what follows in chapters 11 all the way through 14, these are all teachings about what happens when the church gathers together for corporate worship. What, 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 what goes into that? In regards to yeah, some things that, that women are wearing, um, in regards to the Lord's Supper, in regards to spiritual gifts. All of this section here uh, is about what's going on in the corporate worship. And all of these topics uh, are yeah, replies to questions that, they have, that they've, they've asked. Okay, So chapter, first half of 11, we're going to talk about wardrobe for women. Then the second half of chapter 11, love at the Lord's Supper. And then chapter 12 through 14, gifts for the good of others. Those are the kind of the three things that we're looking at. Now, the main purpose in these chapters, it appears, is that Paul desires to promote orderliness in worship. And what he means by orderliness is not just structure uh, of service, though there's, there's some, of, some of that. More, it is orderliness of the heart. That the posture of the heart be rightly oriented toward God and toward other people. Right? Because you've got to remember, again, in Corinth, there's this, there's this undercurrent in the culture of pride and individualism and self-expression that was hindering edification of other people and the glorification of God. So that's, that's what's going on in, uh, in Corinth and it's affecting everything. And the first people he addresses are, are the sisters, okay? And we're going to look here at 11, 2 through 16 uh, about yeah, the wardrobe for, for, the, for the women. Now, a little bit of background. In Corinth, women wore head coverings or veils as a, a cultural expression of submission to their husbands or to men in general. This is, this is what, what women did. You've been... You've you know, been to the Middle East, you will see cultures that do the same sort of, of seeing things uh, t- today. Um, but in Corinth, because it's a progressive city and a trendy city, uh, there was, a, yeah, there was a, a, a women's rebellion movement in Corinth with, you know, burn the burkas. Like, we've got we to gotta, we gotta get rid of the veil, Right? Um, as a way to, yeah, to show that, uh, that women are not under the thumb of men. I'm glad this is not relevant to today. Um, so some of the sisters were tempted to follow in this, and it had crept into to the church and was evidently beginning to disrupt services and to do things that were distracting and, and confusing uh, to, the, to the people. Okay? So there is gender... Confusion in Corinth. And Paul is confronting the sinful practice of unsubmissive women undermining male leadership. That's at the heart of what's going on in this, this conversation. Okay, Let's just walk through it and do the best as we can. Now, one of the things that's tricky, by the way, is they're both, there's theological things that are rooted in creation colliding with cultural expressions in a way that make this really debated and discussed about how does this apply today. We'll work through some of that, but there's going to be a tension that you're going to be feeling of creation and culture, design and expression, 
that is just, it's all tangled up here. For them, it would have made a lot of sense. For us, reading it in a different culture, it's more difficult a little bit, okay? Verse 2, now I commend to you, uh, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. So he starts off with a word of encouragement. Verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife or woman, depending on the translation, is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So again, he begins by encouraging them here for carrying out the teachings that he had entrusted to them. And again, remember that there are, there are cultural and theological realities here that are colliding. And verse 3 is intended to serve as a theological basis for everything that follows after it in this section. All right? We are to see that in some sense, the relationship between men and women in the church is analogous to the relationship of Christ and the Father. There's some sort of parallel that we're intended to see here. All right? So, Jesus, He shares every attribute that belongs to the Father. And as the eternal Son, He voluntarily and joyfully submits to the Father. Right? So Jesus did not think submission was a dirty word. He loved it. He loved submitting to the Father. Similarly, in God's creation, there are different roles for, for men and women in both the home and in the church, and there's a lot of discussion about what that looks like in culture, but he's talking specifically about the, the, cult, the, the, the congregation as they're gathered on, on the Lord's Day, okay, and, and other times when they're gathered. Um, and these distinctions in no way demean women, all right? Women have the same dignity, same value, same worth. He's actually going to get to that by the end. At the end, he's going to be like, now, just to be clear, and he's going he's to be really clear about that, okay? Now, what is clear here is that women who pray or prophesy publicly in Corinth were supposed to do so in a way that they, um, they reflected the cultural norms for submitting to male headship. So one of the transcendent principles is that when, yeah, in the gathering of the local church, that men and women relate in such a way that, that God's wise and good design of male headship or leadership is affirmed and not uh, dismissed or yeah, resisted. All right? um, and again, there's, there's some discussion, and I, I'm, there's going to be so many questions and things you can go into. I'm going to do my best to just keep the big picture in view for us. But there is discussion about whether he's talking about men here or uh, men and women generally or more husbands and wives specifically. And it kind of goes back and forth a little bit. So that makes it a little tricky. But verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. That's sarcasm. But since it is, a, is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her head be covered. So what he's saying here is that in the gathered congregation, that if a man wears a veil or a head covering to pray or to prophesy, he shames his own head, which could mean his literal physical own head, like he, sh he brings shame upon himself, which you've got to remember, this is an honor and shame culture. 
where, where feelings of both honor and shame, they, they mean everything, okay? So if he wears a veil, he's wearing a cultural symbol of womanhood upon his head in a way that it would bring dishonor on him, his head, and also dishonor to his head, who is Christ. That's, that's the idea. It'd be the same idea as if, if, for instance, if I got up here to preach this morning in high heels and a dress, it would be, it would be I'd be wearing cultural symbols of a woman and that would dishonor me, and it would dishonor my head, who is Christ. Okay? Now, if a woman refuses to wear the cultural symbol of a veil, she dishonors her head, which, if she is married, is her husband. If not, it would maybe be her father or just the, the, the men who are leading there. Um, it could also be a symbol of being sexually available. So in this culture... If a woman does not wear something on her head, um, and I, you know, for, for time's sake, I'm not going to read all the, the different writings from this day, but it, it could be as a, a sign for, hey, I'm available. Or temple prostitutes would very often shave their heads. So they were known as being prostitutes. So basically, this is, this is what he's talking about with the shaving of the head. That, that if, if you will cast off your symbol of cultural, your cultural symbol of femininity then you might as well just shave your head like a prostitute, is what he's saying. It's a bit of sarcasm. It's a little tongue-in-cheek tongue in there. Women were culturally expected to adorn themselves with a head covering as a symbol of submission, and if not, it sends a message to all the men that they are rejecting male headship. If they're, so if they're married, it's dishonoring their husband. If they're not married, it's dishonoring the, the, the elders of the church, at least immediately there in this context. Okay? Now, verse, verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. What he's doing is he's going back here to the creation account. That men were created in the image of God, which women are equally as well. He's going to make that clear in a little bit. And that's clear throughout the rest of Scripture. But women are un- unique in their creation. Um, women are the glory of man because they came from man. Right? So you remember that God created Adam from dust and He created Eve from Adam. That's what He means, that she's His glory in that sense. Right? Because she came out of Him. Um, God made Adam from the dust, made Eve from Adam's side. The woman was called to be Adam's helper. This is what he's talking about there with the woman was created for, for man in, in that sense, not as some kind of, you know, someone to go fetch stuff for him or some kind of demeaning role, but as a helper, which I think is really important, by the way, to realize that when God created Adam, who was a perfect man, he was incomplete. He needed a helper, even as a perfect man. God creates all of us incomplete. Now, pause. As you feel, if you do, feel temptation toward this being offensive in any way, shape, or form, I just want to encourage you to remember that this same sort of argument is going to be used in 1 Corinthians 12 when he talks about the way that God arranges the body just as he wants. And that there should not be pride or um, resentment for how God has made you or where he's placed you. He's made you as He's made you to serve in the purpose that He has for you. So back to the earlier chapters, we ought to be content in it and thankful. Whether you be the one who's charged with leadership, which is very hard, 
or whether you be the one who is called to submit, which is very hard because both are in a fallen world. So this is, this is what's, what's happening here. Now, Paul roots the call for women in Corinth to wear head coverings in creation itself. Now, let me go ahead and give you a little bit of a, a window into, I think, how we're going to apply this. This doesn't mean that all women in all cultures ought wear head coverings. And we'll get to why in a moment. But it does mean that the creation order of male headship is a timeless truth that regardless of culture should be valued and upheld and celebrated. So, so that last word is really important. It's not just put up with. It's actually celebrated. That this is the way God's designed things. And it's good. Okay? Now, verse 10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Because of the angels. Now, that's interesting. Verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, a woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now man is born of woman, and all things are from God. So he does a couple things that are really important here. He reminds the Corinthians of two realities. The first is that women ought honor the distinctions that God has created because the angels are watching. Now, you think about that as a motivation for obedience. One of the reasons you obey is because angels are watching. A little creepy, but interesting, okay? And, and what, what is supposed to happen... You, so, Real quick. Ephesians 3.10 says that what's happening in the church, God's wisdom is being put on display for angels and demons. So in some sense, what God is doing in the church with redeeming sinners and bringing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation together in the church in a way in which the love and the grace of God is, is seen and manifested, it's to be a testimony to the angels and the demons as to why God is worthy of worship which will be used as evidence on the final day of judgment when Satan and his demons are cast into the lake of fire. The church is exhibit A as to why the rebellion of Satan was wrong. Because God's worthy to be worshipped. So, by the way, church is not about you. It's about Jesus, and it's about cosmic things that are a lot bigger than us. So he, he says here, ladies, the angels are watching. So, so don't be inculcated by the worldly wisdom that tells you to cast off design because it's oppressive. Now, certainly there are men who are oppressive and have abused women and have mistreated their authority. Certainly. But, don't, but please, we've got to hear that God says this is a good thing that the angels love to see when the church is operating as it should. It's, 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 it's wonderful. The other thing is that women and men are not independent of each other. So this is no way is presenting men as superior. It's just distinct. Men and women are different. And they have different roles, which have each their different pressures and their different difficulties. They need each other. They complement each other. Okay? Now verse 13. Here we go. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper, proper for a wife to pray to God with her head 
uncovered. Culturally, everybody would have said, no, it's not proper. Because culturally, everybody knew that if a woman takes off her veil or her head covering, it's saying, I reject my husband's authority over me. I reject male headship over me. Verse 14. Does not nature itself teach you that a man, that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? All right. So, <laughs> let, let me get you the heart of what he's saying. If a man wears his hair in a way that presents himself as a woman, it is dishonoring. This is the heart of what he's getting after. He's getting after roles and cultural distinctions between male and female. This is culturally rooted. So not all culture everywhere would creation testify that men shouldn't have long hair. But in that culture... The distinction between men and women, one of the ways is the way in which people did their hair. And there were ways that women did their hair that if a man did his hair in that way, it would make everybody go, huh, in the same way that if I showed up in heels and a dress. It'd be the same sort of thing. This is a creation argument applied to a particular culture. Does that make sense? It's a creation argument of design between distinction of, of, of men and women applied to a particular culture. But if a woman has long hair, is it her glory? For her hair is given uh, her head for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, again, how does nature teach that men should not have long hair? The natural... Though fallen, so there is difficulty sometime in this, and, and some people are more given to difficulty in being able to discern this than others. But the natural, God-given, built-in maleness inclines a man to be able to sense when wearing certainly culturally defined symbols of womanhood is shameful. Again, the idea of a dress and, and high heels. There's, there's a sense in which nature teaches me that that would be wrong because of the culture. Where, if I'm in Scotland and I'm wearing a, a kilt, it would not be the same. It'd be very different because that's actually manly, right? That's what you do, right? I don't know if that's Scottish or Irish, but whatever it is, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's, that's what you do, that's what you, that's what you do right? You wear a kilt with no britches, right? I mean, like, this is just like, oh, all right, no. But, but this is, that's a totally different culture. And this is, what, this is how he's applying it. That there are real distinctions that are applied uniquely in each culture. Right? So I'm just going to go ahead and say it all. All right, here we go. Our culture has lost its stinking mind. I know everybody thinks it's progressive, thinks it's awesome, thinks it's good to be inclusive, to just blend men and women. It's nonsense. I want you to know it is sin, and I want you to know, I think any time you see an area that Satan attacks vehemently, it's because there's something very precious that God thinks he wants to show in it. So both sex and issues of distinction between manhood and womanhood, there's something that God thinks is glorious in those things. Because he roots this in the Trinity. There's a distinction between man and woman that shows what God's like. What the Father and Son's beautiful, wonderful, eternal relationship is like. And Satan hates that. 
So he wants to do anything he can to distort that. Same thing in, in, in sexuality. It's, in, it's intended to be a gift for a husband and a wife that share in the most intimate sort of expressions of love that is to be protected and guarded. Not something that's just frivolous. It's for anybody that undermines all of the faithfulness of God to His bride, the church. It's satanic. It's just all it is. And I understand that there is fear of how people are going to perceive. So, so some dude could find that on the internet and clip that and tweet it and it's the most hated thing it's ever been. But it's true. And this is where everything that Paul's been talking about with the worldly wisdom, what's going to stand on the last day? God in His Trinitarian nature will never change. Never change. And that is reflected in His distinctions in design of men and women. And it's upheld as a good thing. Now that being said, I want to give one other caveat. Everybody has fallen. And in our fallenness, there are real struggles sometimes in, or, in us to be able to understand who we are. Not everybody feels that the same way. For some people, it's very difficult to understand why they're made the way they're made. That they don't feel like they match up. I just want you to know, first of all, that God loves you and He is not being cruel to you. Secondly, I want you to know that the church is a place where people will love you and be patient and help you to walk in the ways that are very difficult. And we each have our own crosses to bear and that may be one for you. But I want you to know that in the church you will find a people who understand brokenness because we're all broken. Everybody's broken. We may not have all the answers, but we can help one another day by day until we see the Lord Jesus and He makes everything right. Which is what makes chapter 15 so glorious that there's a resurrection body coming that's going to be free from all confusion and distortions and brokenness. It'll be made right. It'll be good. So all of this is us looking to God's wisdom and clinging to it by grace day by day until we see His face. Knowing that there's constantly messages from the world that are going to call you to look elsewhere. But Paul says, no, no, no. Look to God, who is the eternal three in one, and find grace in Him. I'm happy to try and take questions. What questions would you have? Yep. So, how should we think about this being applied today? What might this look like for, for, for the church? Um, yeah. So, for instance, um, if a if a sister got up on uh, on Sunday morning to, to to pray or to prophesy, and as she got up, she took off her marriage ring and dropped it down, and then walked up and then just laid it out there, that could be perceived as dishonoring her husband. That would maybe be one way. I think there's other ways with, um, you know, how in regards to, to modesty and what one wears, which I just want to be clear, a modesty is both a male and a female issue. Some of y'all dudes need to stop doing what you're doing. But like, um, like this, um, there's, I'm just saying, just saying, summer's coming. Um, anyway, 
<laughs> I'm just saying. So I, I, I think it's going to be culture by culture. And, and this is where I think we need, we need good godly wisdom and lots of prayer. Um, I think it's one of those things where you kind of know it when you see it. So I don't think it's wise for churches to devise rules of your skirt has to be this long and you have to wear this sort of you know, sweater over this and that and your you know, cleavage can only go this far. And this. I don't think giving out measurements is what's going to cultivate holiness. I think this is a heart issue that is going to be cultivated through humble conversations between older, wiser women and younger women and, 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 and brothers and sisters talking openly. And yeah, I, so I... I, I'm, I'm hesitant to just give prescriptions, but I think there needs to be conversations. So, yeah, so I encourage you, brothers and sisters, as you're hanging out, talk about this. What would this maybe look like? So, good question. Yeah. What would you say to somebody who says, you know, you fundamentalist Christians only apply the culture card when it's convenient for you? Yeah. You do it for this issue, but not for homosexuality, or not for women's future, or those types of things. So, give me another example. What would be one that they would say, Here's a culture card that you you don't like to talk about. Well, Paul addressing uh, the I do not permit a woman to teach. It's yeah. only in that context that Paul's saying that, mm-hmm. and not today's context. It could, why don't we apply today? Why 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 do we apply this head covering passage? Women don't have a covering. Oh, good. Well, because because the issue is it's a creation issue. So again, this is a creation issue of distinction between man and woman. That's creation. That's garden. Same thing he does in First Timothy chapter two. He roots it in garden. This is a garden issue. The expression of that looks different in every culture. So presentation of self, clothing, that kind of stuff is is all going to be cultural, which every culture is going to have beautiful things and deplorable things, right? And, And it needs to be sifted through in each situation. So the issue of a woman having authority over man in in the way that we're talking about it is not a cultural issue. It's a creation issue. The head covering is a cultural issue that takes its cues from the creation issue. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you think gender roles and, and how we're talking about it is something that should be um, as like a church statement of faith or something that should divide um, people communing together in one church to get the clarity of it? Yeah, should, should gender roles be something that churches add to statements of faith? I mean, it's in our statement of faith. Um, I think each congregation needs to think through that. But I think you need to be honest about what you believe. So I think, it's, I think it's disingenuous for a congregation that would believe this, either way, to not be open and honest about that at the front uh, with people who are coming into membership. I think you need to be honest about what the Bible teaches and where you stand on it. Uh-huh. What if like there are cultural things in Eastern culture that not really like stem from this own religion, like Muslim or Buddhism? So good. So how how would a culture that's not rooted in maybe Christian ideologies um, or philosophies, how would some of the cultural expressions that are maybe rooted in even in the worship of of false religions, how might how might that be taken? Into consideration. I, I think it would just be a case-by-case basis. So it would be easier if you give me an example. So, for instance, this. Do, can you think of one off the top of your head? Like, for instance, like, Muslim women, I don't know, 
Right. So, like, how is that? Yeah, so for instance, if, if you... If they don't wear it, it, it shows that they don't want to be submissive. Yes. So this is where I would say for a Christian woman, you should become all things to all men in that situation. That you, if you're going to go into yeah, a, Muslim, a Muslim culture where that's going to be the expectation for all the other ladies, I, I think it's a, it, it makes good sense to be able to, to wear a, a covering in some way that would be appropriate uh, that, would, that would not hinder the hearing of the gospel. I think that would be a fine thing to do. Now, if your conscience says, I should not do that, that's a different thing. Um, then you shouldn't, and somebody else should, should go who would be, be free to do it. So, um, yeah, I think as long as you're not like wearing like a, you know, a necklace of Buddha or, you know, something like that, like that, that's very different, right? So. All right, I think that's it for, for questions. We're going to do the Lord's Supper right now. We're just going to stick on it, okay? So hang with me. He's going to move now to something else that's happening while they're gathered, and this is the celebration of the Supper. Verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because... When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine uh, among you may be recognized. But uh, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? I shall not commend you in this. No, I will not. So Paul has gotten a scandalous report. And here's the report. The way the church would get, they would get together um, and think of Lord's Supper as, um, as more than the way that most churches do it today. Lord's Supper in the early church, it would have been a meal. So people would have gotten together and they would have, they would have feasted together. And they would have taken uh, of, of the bread and the cup. They certainly would have done that. But it would have been part of a larger time of fellowship. Well, the word out on the street is what's happening is that the wealthy people, they're getting together a little earlier. And they are, they're crushing the buffet. And they are drinking all the wine. And they're getting, they're getting stuffed and drunk. And then the people who are on the outside, who are maybe less fortunate or poor or whatever the situation is, they, they're showing up, and it, all the food's gone, and there's no, food, there's, no, there's no food, there's no drink, there's no communion together, there's no celebrating the Lord's Supper. He says, this ain't the Lord's Supper y'all are celebrating, it's the Corinthian Supper, and this is wrong. So he's rebuking them because, again, what's happening is the haves, sometimes it's knowledge, sometimes it's possessions, are not being thoughtful about the have-nots whether it be knowledge or possession. So here again, you have a lack of love that's, that's being shown in selfishness. This is, this, and this is just what worldly wisdom does. It produces self-centered selfishness, right? So in verses 23 through 26, he's going to give you the Savior's instructions about the supper. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, He took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the bread is a remembrance of Christ and his body that was broken. He lived a perfect life in a body. His body was broken on the cross. It was buried in the uh, tomb. And then it, he, yeah, he was raised from the dead. Okay? So do this in remembrance of Jesus. Well, verse 25, In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance 
of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So here, again, the taking of the cup. Jesus is symbolizing that, through, that, that though we are sinners and deserve sin, Christ came and on the cross He drank down the cup of the wrath of God for our sins so that through His death He would go on the ground and His resurrection now, through union with Him, we can be forgiven of our sins and He will remember them as the new covenant says no more. We will be united and reconciled to the Father and now we are under the new covenant that is purchased by the blood of Christ. So when we take the Lord's Supper, it's a remembrance that Jesus drank down the cup of wrath that we might be able to look, lift up a cup of forgiveness and celebration. And as we do it, we do it not just remembering what happened in the past that ought to affect our present, but also the future. As often as you drink it, remember it's of me. For as often as you drink and bring, uh, and drink, eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So it's a look back, a sobering remembrance of Christ and His death on the cross. And it's also a celebratory hope and proclamation that we believe Christ is coming again. So the meal, both, the meal ought to be both sobering and celebratory. We remember Christ. Christ is the focus. So again, remember, just like he started the, the, the book, Jesus is central. Look at him, because they're looking at themselves. And it's producing selfishness. Well, verse 27. Now he's going to give you some sobering directions. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So he gives some sobering instructions about the way you take the meal. So the meal is wonderful, but you can't take it flippantly. I'll say it this way. One of the ways to take the Lord's name in vain is by taking the Lord's Supper in a way that simply reduces it to either religious stuff or an opportunity for indulgence. That's taking the Lord's name in vain, which is what basically you take the symbols of the body and the blood of Christ and you treat them as nothingness. And God says that brings judgment. So whoever eats and drinks the, the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord because you've taken his name in vain. Let a person examine himself and then discern the body. So notice here, whenever you're preparing for the Lord's Supper, so at our church we take it twice a month. We do it on a regular basis so that we're regularly remembering him. And as we do, as we're preparing for the Lord's Supper, we should consider ourselves... Is there unrepentant sin in my life? Is there something that I need to confess to the Lord? Are God and I, yeah, are, are, are we good? Are we in fellowship? Am I abiding? And then you need to discern the body. Are there people that I'm not right with? Are there people that Jesus would say, leave your offering at the offer and then go, make yourself right, and then come back and make your offering? Are there people that you need to reconcile with? You got beef with somebody, you need to straighten out and ask for forgiveness before you come to the table. So what the Corinthians were doing is they sure weren't thinking about their own sin and they sure weren't thinking about serving others. In both ways, it's bringing judgment on the congregation. 
He says, that's why some are weak and ill and some have even died. This is discipline from the Lord. Now, I think this is important to notice that sin can bring this sort of physical effects. Doesn't always, but sometimes it can. You see the same sort of thing show up in the, the book of James at the end of chapter 5, that if people have unconfessed sin and they come and confess it to the, to the elders, that the elders will pray for them and they'll be forgiven, they'll be healed. Well, this congregation was not just sick spiritually, but it was happening physically now. And God had even killed some of them. Now, that doesn't mean they weren't believers. It just means that it's in discipline He removed them. Well, verse 33, to so share the supper. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So this is just a final word to gather together for the Lord's Supper to remember Jesus and to serve one another. Right? So in our context, that's usually a little bit different than the way we take the Lord's Supper. I think that one of the best ways to do this is to make sure, as we said, that you're coming with confessed sin and that you are mindful that relationships with others are, are as well as they can be. Okay? I'll just see what questions you have. What questions do you have about the Lord's Supper then? Yes. Yeah, so um, I just preached on this last Sunday. Um, so you, you listened, I do a, like a long thing on that. But the, the short of it is, is this is a picture of the Passover. Christ, the Passover lamb, was slain. Right. So, so, so in, in, the, in the Exodus, they're enslaved, under bondage, and God is delivering them. He does it by an innocent, spotless lamb's blood being shed, and the blood is put on the doorpost by faith, and all who hide by faith under the blood of the lamb will be delivered from the death angel who will pass over them, and they will escape and head toward the promised land. Well, in the same way, the Lord's Supper is a remembrance that Christ indeed is our Passover, that He is the one who came, whose blood was shed, and now we by faith hide under Him, and in so doing, the wrath of God will pass over us because it has already fallen on Him. So, yeah, it's, it's a great connection. Why do we take discerning the body? Why do I take discerning the body there as not being the, the bread, but rather being the, the church? I simply think because of, of the context that's around it, I think he's drawing their attention to, to one another um, and, and the body as a whole. He's, and he's about to, chapter 12, use body to talk about the people of God as the church of God as an illustration. So I think it's going to play into that. Good question, though. Maybe one more on the Lord's Supper. So how should churches think about fencing the table, or why don't some churches? I don't know why they don't. I actually think that in our day, one of the ways that the Lord's name is most taken in vain is, is in churches that don't fence the table. And I think the leadership is, is poorly caring for the people who are there, because they ignorantly may be eating and drinking judgment upon themselves if they're not being instructed by what's happening. Yeah, so I think it's dangerous. So I think churches should repent of that. Yeah. 
fencing the table, yeah, uh, this is who it's for, and this is who it's not for. So, so at our church, you know, we, we, you know when we're, we're serving the, the supper, we'll say, um, yeah, if you're, this, this is for the members of Delray Baptist Church. So we're actually commanding you to eat. Take this. It's from the Lord to remember him. It's an exhortation. Eat this. If you're visiting with us, so do that if you're a member in good standing at Delray Baptist Church, which means you're not under church discipline. Um, if you're visiting us, and you would be able to take the Lord's Supper at the church that you're a, a, a member at, be a part there, then you are welcome to take the Lord's Supper with us here today. But if you're here as a non-believer, we would say that you should allow these elements to pass from you, not because we're not trying to be non-hospitable to you. Come and eat at our houses. We'd love to have you. But because these symbols mean something, and you don't want to eat and drink judgment on yourself. Or if you know yourself to be a believer, and you know you have unrepentant sin, then we would encourage you to allow the elements to pass by you now as well, so you're not eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. So you're saying who should eat and who shouldn't eat. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you're teaching us, and we pray, God, that we would rejoice in your designs and that we would remember Jesus and delight in him above all things. In the name of Christ.